You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Operator, I had to come to another phone. I was eating dinner and... There you are. Hello? Mr. President? Yes, Dick. How are you? Did I interrupt your dinner? That's all right. I, I was eating with some... There's been presidents and president-elects of different parties involved in presidential transitions over American history. And there's been disagreements, there's been disappointments, things that presidents wanted from president-elects that they didn't get. But in the case of 1968, it starts with charges of treason. And they oughtn't to be doing this. This is treason. By now we know the story. It's on the verge of the election. It's October 31st, 1968, the election is going to be on November 5th. Lyndon Johnson is advised by his people that he has received sufficient assurances from the North Vietnamese side that they are willing to talk, that he is going to halt bombing to encourage this. Definitely from the Johnson point of view, he's earlier in the year informed all the candidates about what he was trying to do. Well, Dick, I think this is true. I think this is true. I think everybody's pushing for a bombing pause. I think you are. I think I am. I think everybody is. That's right. So from his point of view, this shouldn't be a shock. And so he makes an announcement. Nixon's got a big lead over Democratic opponent Hubert Humphrey, who's also the vice president in 1968. But Humphrey, in these last weeks, is on a bit of a comeback trail. He's on the... um, Nixon won't debate him, so he's out there calling him out. Ever notice what happens to Nixon when the political winds blow? Last year, he said, I oppose a federal open housing law. This year, he said, I support the 1968 Civil Rights Bill with open housing. Again this year, he said, I just supported it to get it out of sight. Which way will he blow next? On November 5th. He's starting to close the gap with some of the more liberal Democrats who might have voted for McGovern or McCarthy during the primaries because of his policy and his acceptance, his change in the policy they made in his speech in Salt Lake City, one that didn't make Lyndon Johnson happy. So now here's LBJ announcing this bombing halt to bring the North Vietnamese to the peace table. Nixon's team clearly wants to stop this. And in all that happens... During 1968, everybody does a little wrong here. Lyndon Johnson has spied on Nixon's campaign. Nixon, through an aide, uh, Anna Chenault, a widow of a um, heroic American pilot who has connections with the South Vietnamese, she clearly works. She admits to a Nixon biographer in 1997, confirms what almost everyone knew, that she had worked to send a message to the South Vietnamese after a meeting with John Mitchell at the Pierre Hotel, where Nixon had his campaign and his transition headquartered, New York City, that the South Vietnamese should wait. They should delay. They'll get a better deal once Nixon's in office. Don't deal with Lyndon Johnson. President of South Vietnam announces that he's not going to participate in talks. There is a huge show of support from the South Vietnamese Senate. The Senate the the entire body of the Senate in South Vietnam walks from the Senate chamber to the presidential palace to salute the president for this decision. They do not want to give up to the communists. So there's this whole thing that goes on. LBJ calls up uh, his friend, the senator from Georgia, Richard Russell, complains about the behavior of the Nixon team, calls up Everett Dirksen, the minority leader in the Senate of the Republican Party, and definitely has connections with Nixon. Some of our folks, including some of the old China lobby, are going to the Vietnamese embassy and saying, please notify the president that if he'll hold out to November the 2nd, they could get a better deal. Uh-huh. It's a fairly recent thing. Now, we, I think most listeners of this podcast, because I've talked about it, just kind of know about this story. But 
Um, it really all came out in, in recent times, say like in the last two decades. It wasn't part of Nixon history before, and now it has to be added. Nixon and LBJ do talk before the election. Nixon explains his position. Lyndon Johnson doesn't know that Nixon's directly involved. History won't know either till much later. 2007, maybe, you know, is when it's actually confirmed. There's parts of it that are confirmed. Handwritten notes from Bob Haldeman corroborate the idea that Nixon knew about the plan and ordered Chennault to communicate with South Vietnam. Notes were taken by Haldeman October 22nd, 1968, during a phone conversation with Nixon. That's how Nixon operated, so Haldeman was his arm. Any other way to monkey wrench it, anything RN, Richard Nixon can do. These notes show that Nixon wanted to have nationalist Chinese businessman Louis Kung also pressure the president of South Vietnam not to accept a truce. He also wanted Spiro Agnew. So he wanted multiple ways to pressure the South Vietnamese, perhaps get uh, Taiwanese President Chiang Kai-shek involved in this, to not accept an early peace deal that might benefit Humphrey. Point could be raised. Why are you trying to do a bombing halt a few days before the election if you're not trying to help your vice president win the election? Wasn't Lyndon Johnson, for instance, reading the tea leaves and saying, hey, things have shifted here. Humphrey might win. Let me at least make it Lyndon Johnson's Humphrey win instead of Humphrey's win. Possibility just throwing it out there, speculative. I will say, though, on the other hand, there are some notes. Um, I'll take a look at those now. An NSC document now publicly available, not publicly available then, indicates it is the Russians who tell the Johnson administration that this bombing halt is what's going to bring the North Vietnamese to the table. It is part of a process that really begins in June and heats up during September. It is not when you observe some of these points and the various um, communications between really four governments, the Soviet Union, the United States, North Vietnam, South Vietnam. It doesn't have the hallmarks of just something that Lyndon Johnson could call in. It's really that by the time you're getting to the end of October, North Vietnam has agreed to four-party talks if they can get cessation. And they want to meet North Vietnam as early as November 2nd. South Vietnam's president, this is prior to what may have came from the Nixon campaign, agrees to this proposal on October 13th. And I think that the Nixon team was successful in their goal, completely adverse to American national security and policy, but certainly cast enough doubt about that peace talk that it didn't benefit Humphrey enough in the campaign. As it was, it became a laser-close election. This news coverage of election night 68 continues. That the race uh, for the presidency and the 26 electoral votes in Illinois uh, may indeed turn out to be very close. We'll be coming back to all of those for you, of course. Where no one expected that. In Ohio, some of the vote tabulation in there now, with about 3% of the actual vote tabulated in Ohio. Yeah, it's interesting seeing Dan Rather doing his kind of Steve Kornacki, Nate Silver here. Richard Nixon running ahead of Hubert Humphrey, George Wallace running third. Now, our CBS News estimate in the state of Ohio... And we're getting, we have actually more of our sample precincts in from Ohio than any other state in the Midwest. And it indicates that it's simply so close that we can't uh, spot a trend as yet. But Nixon would win that election. The popular vote is 43.4% for Nixon to 42.7% for Humphrey. Humphrey carries the states of New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Minnesota, Michigan, Wallace, George Wallace, gets 13% of the vote and carries five states. So, you know, Nixon wins, but this is not where polls had Nixon. Just in the beginning of October, the Gallup poll has Nixon at 43%, which is pretty close to where he was. Humphrey all the way down 31%. I'm just sitting here with your old friend Rebozo. Oh, give him my love. I think he's one of the finest yeah. persons I ever knew. I want you to say hello to him. I'd love to. Now, considering that all of this that went on, the transition between Richard Nixon and Lyndon Johnson could be described as one of the better ones, really. I want you to know how much we appreciated your wire and also Lady Bird's call to Pat, but it's yeah. all nice. Good news. Except it wasn't because they were chummy, although the phone calls, you know. And uh, as I understand it, uh, we worked it out now that the more inconvenient we'll see you at uh, Monday at uh, 1.30. That's good. That's right. Good. It 
is because they both had things on each other and they both needed each other. But he does tell his staff after the Nixon wins the election, let's not needlessly foreclose the options of the new administration to initiate their program changes. No actions now. That will take a long time. That's at least what he tells his staff. And he talks to Nixon. Now, here's one November 8th. Is there anything I could do before that on this business of uh, South Vietnam? If you want me to do something, you know, I'll do anything because uh, we're not going to let these people stop these peace things if you think I can do something. You know, you have to remember, Johnson was majority leader. Nixon, the vice president of the Senate during the 1950s. Johnson appoints Truman's speechwriter and an aide, uh, Charles Murphy, who helped with the Truman-Eisenhower transition to now work with Nixon. Appoints him as a transition officer. It's a new thing. In his memoir, LBJ brags about how good his transition was. I concluded that if I did not make an attempt to set up a transition, that machinery wouldn't happen. Nixon picks Franklin Lincoln Jr., a law partner and a former Defense Department official, as his representative to deal with Charles Murphy and that transition process. Having made a big deal in the election about being ultra-prepared, you know, he's already set up 30 policy task force led by a professor at Michigan State, and all of this before that he wins. And Nixon's ahead in the polls for most of that 1968 election period. Lyndon Johnson's out of the race. An article in the October 69 Public Policy Administration Review. Can I mention how thankful I am to those who subscribe to the Patreon for allowing me to get access to journals like that? That's really helped out. It says and this is coming right after the election, that Johnson acted earlier and bolder than any previous president in a transition. And then Nixon, for his part, has a campaign staffer who is reviewing hundreds of people around the country for potential cabinet positions. And there's something else. There's a Presidential Transition Act passed in 1963, which defines a public interest in a smooth transition, authorized government space, money for staff, transportation for the transition. This is still in effect today. There will be money. There is a place uh, Biden will be at the Commerce Department is where the location is chosen for the president-elect. That's if the president-elect chooses to go there. So in Nixon's case in 1969, he declined, didn't want to crowd out Johnson in Washington, so he stayed at the Pierre Hotel in New York City where he ran the campaign out of. Uh, it's right at a stalemate now. My judgment is it'll stay that way till election, uh, unless uh, they're hurting worse than we think they are, and we think they're hurting pretty bad. But really, reach-outs between Nixon and LBJ started before the election. Well, the one thing I want to say is this. That my, uh, my statements will continue to be, I hope, responsible. And, uh, is an incumbent president, and Humphrey is his party's nominee, but when he starts pursuing a peace policy in Vietnam. He's taking it seriously. It's his last year in office. He talks to all three candidates. So he talks to Nixon, he talks to Wallace, and he talks to Humphrey. And all three, in one way or another, give an assurance that they won't interfere, that it's, you know, they're going to go along. He really treats that policy as separate from partisan politics. On July 28, 1968, Nixon and LBJ meet so this is even during the election, but before that disastrous Democratic convention. And Lyndon Johnson just tells Nixon and sticks with Nixon about all of the letters that he had to write to the next of kin who died. And he wanted to end Vietnam. Uh, then Billy Graham, preacher to the president, talks to Nixon. Nixon tells Graham that he thinks Lyndon Johnson is the hardest working president in 140 years. That puts him at Lincoln. Nixon tells Graham, furthermore, I don't want to embarrass him. I'll attack Humphrey. I'll campaign. But if elected, I'll work with Lyndon Johnson. And he adds, I'll make sure he gets credit for solving Vietnam. It's good poker. Nixon senses that this is not the traditional president-vice president running to succeed him. Johnson's got wants that perhaps he, Nixon, perhaps the GOP can better solve than the Democrats can or Humphrey can. Historians wonder about this. Nixon thought it was at least worth a shot. The Graham channel bears fruit, at least rhetorically. Lyndon says back to Billy Graham, I will do all to cooperate with him if he becomes president. Message received. Yet in my view, you can't go as far as to say Lyndon Johnson wanted Nixon to win. 
I'd say it's likely he was a realist and thought Nixon would win. Yet LBJ's news just a few days before the election and the confirmation that the FBI provided him, they actually spied on Anna Chenault and saw these meetings, you know, may have changed some of that. He was he was downright angry about it. At least Nixon's campaign was doing, if not he himself. Now we've gone through a phase where first no one knew about the story about Nixon and the treason, right? And now it's just something that people recite, like, oh, Nixon committed treason. And believe me, when you look at the actions that were taken, you can build that case. I just don't think it's as it's as quick as this. And also, I would caution about Lyndon Johnson's statements to Avery Dirksen about treason versus what he was really thinking about Nixon, especially because just, oh, five days after that phone call, he's going to have another phone call. Now with Nixon as president-elect, and for someone that you know, we think was accusing Nixon of of treason. You know, it's 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 an awfully nice phone call, but don't be fooled. They do have business to discuss. In the meantime, these messages started coming out from here that uh, uh, Johnson was going to have a bombing pause to try to elect Humphrey, and uh, that they ought to hold out because uh, Nixon. Uh, will not sell you out like the Democrats sold out China. And we have talked to uh, different ones. I think they've been talking to Agnew. Uh, I think they think that they've been, they've been quoting you indirectly, that the thing they ought to do is to just not show up at any conference and wait until you come into office. Right. Now, they started that, and that's bad. They're killing Americans every day. I have that uh, documented. Uh, there's not any question but what that's happening. Now, I said to you uh, in that last uh, talk that I don't believe you know it or you're responsible for it. And I said, to, you know, when I talked to all three of you at uh, that time, but I said, we have problems. Uh, I looked over that transcript the other night. We have problems. I think we can work them out. I believe you will ultimately come, but there are problems. Now, they are problems because these people are telling them that. Now, I think the wise thing to do from the standpoint of your country and from the standpoint of your presidency, and uh, I hope you believe me, I, I want to help you. I want to help you. I don't want to trick you or deceive you. Oh, I, I want peace. And uh, I don't want to get some Democrat uh, in a favorable position over you. But I think they ought to go to that conference. Now, Nixon dances around. I think this. These people are proceeding on the assumption that folks close to you tell them to do nothing till January the 20th. Ah, you got it. Now, we you know, think... I, I know who they're talking about, too. Is it John Tower? Oh, maybe it's John Tower. Well, he's one of several. Ms. Chenault is very much in there. Well, she's very close to John. And uh, there... Nixon doesn't know the name that Lyndon has. Uh, he doesn't know what kind of intelligence occurred. So, Lyndon says, now it's Chenault, and then... Nixon covers by saying, oh, well, Chenalton knows John Tower and stuff like that. So because Lyndon Johnson doesn't know that Nixon knows and the election's already over anyway, he complains more about Republican partisans and uh, being disruptive than Nixon directly. Yeah, that, this is anything we could do right now. Yes, I think you ought to have whoever you trust the most in Washington. Whoever you're... Uh, the ambassador? Yes, sir. Go to the ambassador and say to him, no. I am. I told the president when he proposed these three points, number one, he assured me that he would not be for a coalition government. The president right. has assured me that. That's right. The president assured me he'd never recognize the NLF. So I have those assurances from right. him. Right. The president's going to be as strong on this as I am. But the president thinks that if we're to support South Vietnam through the years ahead, that we must be willing to meet at a conference table. Now, that's all we're asking. They're going to talk about a lot of things. You see the difference in style? You know, Nixon here is very quick, very short on the phone call. Now, it's not the way Nixon's going to be, say, on the Watergate tapes with his own employees. But it is kind of the communication style of Nixon. I mean, he's not as much of a talker as Lyndon Johnson. Afterwards, a couple of years later, Bob Haldeman and 
Nixon are going to have Lyndon Johnson over at San Clemente, Nixon's Western White House in California. And uh, Haldeman's going to record that, unlike his boss. Why, Lyndon Johnson talks a lot. And he's got a lot of rants and a lot of grievances. <laughs> and, you know, that was Lyndon Johnson's Texas communication style, you know. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. He finds commonality with Nixon. And what Humphrey had said, that he wouldn't... Uh, uh, wait. Uh, that, well, he just said, we, I don't. I will stop the bombing, period. I don't mean comma or semicolon. So Hanoi picked up the next day and went home for two weeks. Attacking one of his own party, Mike Mansfield, the Senate Majority Leader who took Lyndon Johnson's job, who is against Vietnam and now running the Senate. Mansfield's coming in to me tomorrow to say to them to go straight to hell and go on and negotiate a, a get out with Hanoi. That's what he's coming. He's the leader of the Senate. You can't do that because no. we got to... That way you'd leave all those boys out there alone. I sure can. Or uh, pull them out and let leave them there alone. That's what I mean. Yep. Like, can you believe it? These people just want to cut and run? Right. Okay. And that's what I'd say to him. There's no, nothing dangerous about it. That You've said that publicly. Well, I, I support the president. I support the government. And I just say, Mr. Ambassador, there's some people raised the question, and I just think you ought to tell your president that I have an agreement with our president that we're going to act in unison, just right. as two partners. Right. We'll do it. Okay. Now, it's possible that Lyndon Johnson gets into a little trouble with that statement about unison and maybe there's a misunderstanding. I think Lyndon Johnson has an idea of what he thinks unison is, meaning Nixon has to say the same things that Johnson's saying. And Nixon may have a different idea, which is going to come out in their, in their next series of phone calls. But this call on the 8th goes fairly well. And, you, you know, there's going to be a normal transition despite the kind of polar opposite approaches and parties that are coming in. There's an answer. Um, there's another call on the 14th, and the transition hits a little stumble. Dick. Hello. Dick. Yeah, I'm on. We, uh, we have uh, some serious problems here resulting from this Murphy announcement. See, Nixon, in a meeting, tells a journalist that he needs to both be kept informed about events in the White House and also understanding that he would need to give his approval to any proposed cause of action. Uh, the press, uh, we're delaying our briefing until I can talk to you because uh, if we're not careful, we'll be uh, answering each other and be uh, making different announcements. Obviously, Lyndon Johnson's not a happy camper here. They are construing... Uh, your announcement of uh, Murphy coming here as mine and Russ's agreement that uh, Murphy and you will have to approve every decision from here on out. No, Johnson doesn't agree with this point. He wants to keep operating until January 20th, 1969. There's only one president, and he lets Nixon know it. The Soviets could take advantage of any such misunderstanding like that. Nixon has to back down. I mean, how can he not? He's not in the chair yet. Oh, no, that's not accurate because they asked that. And I said that, uh, uh, that as a matter of fact, that you and Russ could, uh, uh, were, uh, had uh, indicated that you wanted to inform me of everything and that... Uh, where anything major was involved, you wanted to be sure that I was consulted on it, and that that's why Murphy was going to be there. And he claims that all he's saying is that um, if there's going to be an action that needs to be implemented past January 20th, 1969, how can he not have to be in agreement with that? Because it's going to need to be implemented by him. So he assumes there'll be consultation and agreement. Uh, Johnson only wants the first, the consultation. Uh, that uh, any... Uh, any major policy decision that has to be implemented by the new president, uh, the old, the, the previous administration, the present administration would want to clear it with the new administration to be sure it would be implemented. That was exactly the line we were trying to get across. Well, uh, I think that what we better do, uh, what they're saying is that uh, his agreement would be necessary to the development of any of these decisions. Now, I think what we ought to say and what my secretary proposes to say is that the other day we uh, 
stated to you that we hoped you would name a Secretary of State and Defense as soon as you could. We knew the great problems involved. Until you could, uh, we hoped you would designate a liaison man <coughs> to be in the State Department uh, to review the cables that come in and go out and the decisions uh, that were being made here so you could be informed. I'm not a co-president, he made it clear to him. They're going to make it two presidents if they can so that the Russians can move or something else during this period. And we, you just must stand on that statement the other day because you couldn't improve on it if you spent a year. I will make whatever decisions need to be made between now and January 20th. The, brief, the briefing the other day where Rusk uh, had something about NATO and he said, well, now I don't want to say anything on NATO uh, about our position on NATO if you find it would be difficult to for you to carry out. And I said, go right ahead. It's all right with me. Nixon's got a point. Um, he did clear that NATO statement with him. Well, he had you that prepared statement. I told him in making a public speech yeah. to the NATO people that I thought that he didn't want to say something that would obviously be denied or, or well, that was, for your displeasure. That was, that was actually what I was referring to in this when I announced Murphy. And on Vietnam, let me make one thing very clear, as you will note if you read the, the, the transcript of the thing on the Vietnam, I said that the president's policy has been my policy and that we, uh, uh, we stand together on it. And, of course, it's Murphy's as well. And I think that's the main point. The main point is to be sure there's no question of any difference on Vietnam. But nonetheless, Johnson is going to get what Johnson wants here, at least here. Well, the point they want to make, let's, uh, they want to make the... The two presidents, if they can, they want to have a fight back and forth. Now, what I, what Christian's going to say to them, we've been trying to get your transcript for some time. We haven't gotten it down here yet. Our briefing is due at 4 o'clock. We've delayed it 45 minutes. Right. What Christian is going to say that there's not been any agreement of any manner, shape, or form that in any way alters what the two presidents said the other day, I'm not going beyond their respective statements, number one. Sure. Number two, uh, at that time, the president asked uh, the second, uh, asked the president-elect if he desired to have someone sit in at the State Department to, and familiarize himself with the decisions that were being made there. And uh, he, uh, this morning, informed the president he was designating Ambassador Murphy. But the agreements that they have entered, uh, they told you about the other day, they've had no further agreements. Uh, and uh, the agreement is that from now to January the 20th, we will be present, and January the 20th on, he'll be present. Right. Well, we will. And the main thing is that uh, you know with Murphy uh, and with me, you're not going to have any trouble in this. We just want to be sure that, uh, that, uh, that there's no misunderstanding. I can assure you that we'll have no problem. Nixon has to go out there and revise his remarks that that is correct, that uh, obviously the president is president now. We'll make those decisions. There's a meeting with J. Edgar Hoover. Haldeman describes him as flourished, like red-faced, as if he's covering his you-know-what. Uh, at the Pierre Hotel in New York, Lyndon Johnson highly endorses Hoover, a strong man in a city of weak men. Nixon also has praise for him, but eventually he'd be pining for his retirement during his term and eventually see his death during that term. But as for now, Hoover is very active and all but willing to help. And he starts giving Nixon some pieces of information that he doesn't have, um, some of which I think he wants to say, like, hey, it wasn't me I'm ordered to do this. He said, you know, I've been ordered to bug your campaign plan. He exaggerates and says that, you know, makes it appear that it was actually done. The orders were there. And he tells Nixon, just remember, every time you talk to Johnson, he's got his little men listening on the telephone. The final days of November ended on a note of hope. The president received word from Paris that a new and hopeful phase in the negotiations in spite of the tumultuous events of 1968, he said, let us give thanks for the endurance and stability of our democracy as we prepare once more for an orderly transition of authority. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, 
Charles Murphy, LBJ's transition officer, has departments and agencies create materials as part of the Presidential Transition Act. There's staff being paid for this purpose. Lyndon Johnson splits the funds evenly between himself and Nixon, so his side creating briefing materials and Nixon's side staffing getting ready for the transition. You know, Though uh, Lyndon Johnson tells his staff to wind up operations and not bind the new administration, Republicans, not Nixon directly, charge that the administration during this process is trying to create expectations setting policies of great society programs, housing, and the like. Secretary of Interior Udall considers a special crude oil import quota. Johnson nixes that. Johnson weighs in on a trans-Pacific air route allocation that Nixon's going to suspend after the 20th. Labor Secretary Wirtz wants a reorganization of manpower and employment services. LBJ blocks him on that. Udall tries to designate seven and a half million acres as a national monument. In fact, he announces it in a press release. Johnson never signs that proclamation. Udall threatens to resign in the last weeks, and of course, Johnson talks him out of it. Most importantly, Johnson has his hopes that the Senate will pass a nuclear non-proliferation treaty in his last month. Nixon is non-committal when asked about the subject, and the Senate does not act on it. He's going to work on that treaty in his first year in office and get it done under his name, March 5th, 1970. Most significantly, Johnson's last budget, which goes to Congress January 15th, is going to include raises in Social Security benefits, government salaries, increases in housing benefits. But it's all contingent on a special 10% income tax surtax, which he has instituted to pay for the war and other things and to have that continue beyond June. Nixon has specifically campaigned against that surtax. So Johnson asks Nixon. And uh, there is a phone call on the 10th of January between Nixon and Johnson. I don't, we don't have a recording on that one. There is a note from the White House records. Lyndon Johnson says, Dick, we are trying to finish off our State of the Union, and I thought it would be good to tell you what we had in mind so the people who play us against each other cannot be successful. I'm proceeding on the same basis I had since Billy Graham came to talk to me. I think you want to make my administration look good. I want to make you look good. That's interesting in the transcript. So you see that the, the kind of fiber of this relationship is, is what started with Billy Graham. So... You know, earlier we suspected it, and you kind of see on the 10th that Lyndon Johnson at least is reaffirming it. He says he's not going to recommend a bunch of new programs. Uh, He says that he's going to have a surplus coming from an $8 billion deficit to a 2 to $3 billion surplus. Yeah, this was a different time, folks. And then he says, I want us to march out arm in arm insofar as the future is concerned. You don't have to endorse my programs, but I'm in effect saying in a goodwill message that I came here 38 years ago, and I would like to say to them tonight, I hope Congress will cooperate with the new president. We're all in this together. Now, we are down to this statement. If we continue the surtax, I have got it where we can send the budget up with the pay increase that has been legislated. Now, McCracken says you agree to this statement. It remains my conviction that the surcharge should end as soon as requirements for the war, the budget outlook, and economic conditions will permit. Um, Nixon, basically, that is good. Much better than the longer one. There were too many words and more to misinterpret. And what he agrees on saying is, um, until the new administration and Congress can ascertain that the facts we face justify permitting the surtax to expire or be reduced, I will support the president's suggestion that the surtax be continued. You might think three months, what's the big deal, right? But 1968 and 1969 are big times. There's a lot that happens. And one of which is that South Vietnam, now this is after the election, is going to agree on November 26th 
to forget that delay that they said, the, the few days before Nixon won, and say that they will keep their appointment and they will talk peace in Paris. Something else. Johnson gets the flu. The so-called Hong Kong flu. It's bad. It's going to be responsible for over 700,000 deaths. There aren't a huge amount of, of close downs and things. That This is, this is uh, something that's been talked about and debated. It was something that got him and put him out for a week. So Lyndon Johnson has to spend one of his last months in office, one of the weeks of that, in terrible pain in the flu. And then Humphrey gets it right after that. France has to devalue the French franc, and it halts its nuclear testing program in an effort to save its currency from falling. North Vietnam now responds to South Vietnam's offer to agree to peace talks and says that it will only negotiate with the United States. Romanian Communist Party leader and Prime Minister Nicolae Ceaușescu becomes the first Warsaw Pact leader to publicly reject the so-called Brezhnev Doctrine. This is the Brezhnev, the Brezhnev Doctrine is that if any Warsaw Pact member is leaving socialism, the others will help to contain it. Ceausescu says the affiliation of the Warsaw Treaty Organization does not limit in one way or another their state independence, but on the contrary is a means of strengthening the national independence of each participating state. Well, Ceausescu, I think, as we would find out, just wanted to be his own authoritarian. Pakistan's President Mohammad Ayub Khan announced major concessions to university and college students who had been rioting for the past three weeks, including the repeal of a 1961 law that allowed the Pakistani government to take away college degrees of graduates who had been accused of subversive activities. On December 3rd, the videotaped NBC television special Singer Presents Elvis is aired. Sponsored by the Singer Company, Sewing Machine Company, marks Elvis's first live performance in seven years. It would be one of the most riveting pieces of television ever broadcast. At the close of the show, Presley concludes with a song, If I Can Dream, a song inspired by Martin Luther King. Douglas Engelbart of Stanford University publicly demonstrated his pioneering hypertext system along with a new innovation, the computer mouse that allowed a user to graphically operate a computer system. Richard Nixon appears on television and introduces the 12 people whom he had selected to serve in his cabinet. Former U.S. Attorney William P. Rogers as Secretary of State, Continental Illinois Bank Chairman David Kennedy as Treasury Secretary, Wisconsin Congressman Melvin Lard for Defense Secretary, Nixon's former law partner, John N. Mitchell as Attorney General. He will also retain Henry Kissinger as his National Security Advisor. What couldn't be known then is that Henry Kissinger would be supplying the Nixon campaign with information. before the election, including things like, well, um, Ambassador Harrelman, the ambassador to Vietnam, was um, popping champagne when the bombing halt was announced. First, I want to thank you for making that beautiful plane available to me to go down to Florida. My gosh, that was awfully nice. Well, the... I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Fans of the Philadelphia Eagles NFL team watching the final home game in a season with only two wins were so upset that they booed and then threw snowballs at Santa Claus, earning the city of Philadelphia a reputation as having the most rowdy sports supporters in the nation. Earl Eisenhower, brother, younger brother, to U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower, dies at age 70. So does Norman Thomas, 84, American socialist candidate who ran in six consecutive elections. So does John Steinbeck, 66, 
the novelist known for The Grapes of Wrath. China's Chairman Mao announced in the party newspaper's People's Daily the Down to Countryside movement. There is a need for the educated youth to go to the countryside to receive re-education from the poor, lower, and middle peasants. We must persuade the urban cadres and others to send their offspring who are junior and senior middle school to the countryside. This rustification movement would last more than 10 years. The Chinese government would report over 16 million students. North Korea released 82 members of the U.S. Navy ship Pueblo after 11 months of captivity. It had started when the American ship was seized by the North Koreans. After Apollo 8 astronauts Borman, Lovell, and Anders flew past the moon, it became possible for the first people to see its far side, and they made mankind's first lunar orbit. Over the remainder of the day, the men circled the moon 10 times, each trip taking about two hours, and took photos of potential landing sites and made two television transmissions to Earth. Famously, Anders photographed Earthrise, the view of the Earth being viewed from the moon. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. U.S. President-elect Richard Nixon signs a paper to make a donation to the National Archives of his official papers from his eight-year tenure as Vice President of the United States. Months later, he'd take a tax deduction of at least $60,000 for his federal income tax returns for the 1968 and 1969 years for the estimated value of the papers. This is the first of many deductions which the IRS would deny him in later years, providing the basis for a large penalty an interest, a negative news story, and even an article of impeachment later on. After several warm-up concerts in England, Led Zeppelin made their American debut at Denver. On December 27, 1968, troops from the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China had the first of several violent confrontations with each other on the island claimed by both of them. I'm probably the expert on what a fellow has to go through when, you know, when he's been vice president, he loses an election. What does he do? And uh, one thing he must do, of course, is to continue to, uh, particularly if he isn't, uh, at the time he wants to retire, he must continue to be very, very active and not just become, you know, college president or some darn thing. Work together, uh, I think that's a good, good image abroad, too. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The Apollo 8 capsule returned safely to Earth after its historic orbital flight around the moon and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. China detonated a plutonium-based thermonuclear weapon for the first time. Australian media baron Rupert Murdoch purchased the largest-selling British Sunday newspaper, The News of the World, as shareholders of the news voted to accept his bid over that of British book publisher Robert Maxwell. The 91st United States Congress had its opening day in January 1969. Democratic senators voted 31 to 26 to choose Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts as the majority whip. The Soviet Union launched their second exploration vehicle towards Venus in five days, Venera 6, after a Sunday launch of Venera 5th. The second probe would arrive on May 17th, after the first one's arrival, and like the first... It would cease functioning 11 miles above the surface. On January 12th, the American Football League champions, New York Jets, led by Barash quarterback Joe Namath, upset the National Football League champion Baltimore Colts 16-1 to win the Super Bowl III in Miami. Martial law was declared in Madrid, and over 300 students were arrested after there was protests at the University of Madrid. Samsung Electronics, major brand for smartphone, telephone sets, and home appliances now, was founded in Suwon, South Korea. 
An antitrust lawsuit by the U.S. Department of Labor was filed against IBM, charging the company with monopolizing the digital computer industry. Yes, this in 1969. Programming hindering competitors and limiting the development of the computer programming by its policy of selling its hardware, software, and tech support as an inseparable package. The suit would continue until 1982. On January 18, 1969, the parties to the Paris peace talks came to an agreement on the shape of the conference tables and the placement of the representatives who were negotiating an end to the Vietnam War. After being delayed for nearly six weeks over procedural disagreements, the parties came to an accord that two sides would be clearly separated by two rectangular tables with a round one in the middle, and that the tables would have no nameplates, no flags, no written minutes of the understanding on the setup. In fact, to get agreements on the conference table, this is per the uh, Public Policy Review article to get agreement on the conference table. That comes after a private phone call between Richard Nixon and the South Vietnamese president. So that's all that Lyndon Johnson gets in the end out of the peace negotiations that start right before the election and cause all that trouble, an agreement on a conference table. Now, that gets made fun of a lot in history, but it is an important starting point at least. It's just that it does appear no one's interested in dealing while LBJ is still in office. I think that there's one event that, that, that occurs or doesn't occur during the transition that doesn't get a lot of play, and that's that Lyndon Johnson, having delayed his talks with the Soviets over having another summit in 1968 because of the Czechoslovakia invasion, um, he has to put that off. He wants to reconvene those, those discussions, and he wants a discussion with the, the Soviets, particularly one that's hopefully going to pressure them to help with North Vietnam. Nixon meets with Brezhnev at um, Glassboro, New Jersey, halfway between D.C. and New York, sort of, in 1967. It's also uh, the home area of uh, Democratic New Jersey Governor Richard Hughes, who suggests that area. And I know having gone to in the southern part of New Jersey, it's a it's a big deal there. You know, now it's called Rowan University, but it was a big deal to get just a state college in New Jersey to get such a big summit. Nixon doesn't really um, like the idea of summits. He poo-poos that idea in his memoirs. He said, oh, well, you know, everyone comes out with smiling faces, whether it was Eisenhower's summit or Johnson's summit, and nothing gets done. Linda Johnson would still like to have a summit and potentially even go to Moscow as president in December 1968 to have a crowning end to his presidency. And what actually happens is the Nixon team starts really immediately following the transition to communicate with the Soviets. The Soviets ask if they would like to have an open channel of communication. They do so through the UN ambassador to the Soviet Union. Moscow tells Nixon that they are not pessimistic about a GOP candidate winning the election. Now, this seems to be the opposite of what Nixon says in his memoirs, that he thinks they're very pessimistic. He doesn't think they want a Republican to get in. He doesn't think they like Eisenhower. He thinks that Khrushchev and then Brezhnev liked having Kennedy and then Johnson in there very much, that they preferred Democrats because they were softer. That's Nixon's opinion. Nixon communicates to the Soviet that they want to talk, that there are real, realistic substantial differences between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and therefore a summit would just sort of paper over those real differences that they're going to have to work on. And Kissinger directly tells his Soviet contacts to cancel any idea of a summit. So we have Nixon and his campaign interfering with the South Vietnamese with the 1968 potential peace talks there before the election. And then there's a second one that's less talked about. They also have them getting the Soviets to not pursue an end of his presidency summit with Linda Johnson in 1968. Uh, you could look at that two ways. Is that treason? Well, you know, now he's president-elect and Kissinger's going to be in a few months his national security advisor. He's expressing a preference being that he's the incoming president. He feels strongly that the Soviets were the ones behind 
getting North Vietnam to agree to talks anyway in an effort to hurt his campaign and to help Humphreys. Now, the only evidence we have of that is is Nixon saying so in his memoirs, uh, RN. Yeah, they warn the Soviets off any summit. And the Soviets, oddly, you know, obviously don't want to anger the new administration coming in. So <laughs> it's an odd transition. There were a few flare-ups, and there were some things going on that neither one knew about. In January of 1969, President Lyndon Baines Johnson began his final 20 days as President of the United States. The man who sits in this chair sits in the chair that's been occupied by less than 40 men in the long history of this great republic. He is selected by the will and by the votes of a majority of the citizens of this republic. He must execute the philosophy and the policies of the people of this nation, regardless of his own personal feelings from time to time. So it's it's hard to say, like, this is an example of a great transition. Well, you know, it's a tough one when both sides kind of knew some things. Uh, indeed, later during the Watergate crisis and while Johnson is still alive, you know, Nixon and Haldeman are going to attempt to use Lyndon's knowledge about spying on his campaign as a potential blackmail if he won't get senators to shut down Watergate. And, you know, of course, Johnson doesn't have any of that and lets them know and gets them to back down. But, um, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, you could say it's a great transition, but it's an odd one. Nonetheless, it works. And there's a transfer of power. Possible that historians could look at both developments, the Soviet summit. You know, Nixon's going to end up meeting with Brezhnev in 1972 and 1973. So there's a pretty big gap between those talks. And he, peace talks aren't really going to resolve until the end of Nixon's first term. So one could, you know, could say that it, maybe the transition was successful. Maybe actually the transition caused a lot of problems. But what matters is where whether there has really been a change for the better in the way human beings live in this country. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I really think there has been. Billy Graham goes to the White House on the 19th, and he and LBJ enjoy a movie in the White House, they go to church on the 19th. Nixon will be sworn in on the 20th. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Nixon will set up a special office, the Office of the Former President. And Lyndon Johnson will keep that office busy with requests for information and travel arrangements and other things. Uh, this from Presidential Transitions, the 1968 to 1969 Experience in Perspective by Lauren Henry in the Public Administration Review. I think this is a very interesting final comment that they make. In summary, the transfer of presidential power from Johnson to Nixon was carried out in a way that satisfied the exigencies of the time and contributed to further institutionalization of a change process that is rapidly becoming built into our national government system. The precedent of presidential leadership is such matters, and such matters has become so powerful that certain minimal preparations for ensuring stability during a campaign and possible turnover have become standard even when the president is running and a turnover is only a possibility, as in 1956 and 1964. It seems likely that we now could manage a transition between recent direct opponents without reenacting the Hoover-Roosevelt bitter charade of 1932 and 1933. But it is just as well that the tender precedents were not tested too soon. 
So a very hopeful message from this policy journal in 1969, talking about good administrative practices. And they're, they're right and they're, they're wrong in some sense. Um, by the way, the incident that they're referring to is there was certainly some ugliness between Hoover and Roosevelt, where Hoover wanted Roosevelt to come out supporting policies that he was taking in his last weeks as president, and Roosevelt wanted to wait until at that time, March 4th, when he would take over. Even in a very tense transition, is it even a transition? Well, it is, because you still have, even with someone as president who's hostile to the president-elect, or hostile to even the concept that he's president-elect, right, there's still governmental agencies which take place. It there They were delayed, no doubt. Um, it took a while to authorize that Joe Biden was this had the status of, say, president-elect. But once it did, that opened up funds. And you see certainly the advantage of having a congressional statutory process that exists. So no matter what kind of partisan hijinks are occurring, um, you can get some kind of transition going. On the other hand, I think you can raise questions about this um, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon transition and what it might instruct to the future. Because while there were some good things going on that I'm sure benefited Richard Nixon's stewardship in the next years, um, there was still tension and nothing could mask it. You know, Nixon, through many actions, seems to have denied uh, Lyndon Johnson's intentions of scoring a legacy victory in the end. On the other hand, Nixon just won the election. And is it right to have a president trying to do things in in three months, you know, that are heavy and of a great nature? So you can't get around these questions. It's kind of interesting because we, again, you got to be careful with history and hindsight. So we know about, or, or those who listen to this show, right, or study history, recent history, know about the whole Nixon and the interference with the talks they didn't know that in 1969. So a journal that I'm reading in a public policy administration review, you know, points out that the way that Johnson handles the bombing halt is handled very well. That was a contemporary view of the time. Got the three candidates together, let them know. He, he informed his vice president, Humphrey, Nixon, and Wallace of what was going on with that bombing halt. And it looks like everybody supported it. Well, you know, there were some actions going on behind the scenes. Harry Truman knew what it was like to hit the ground running and didn't want to see another president have to do that like he did. Eisenhower's people would have no trouble, he said. They would be allowed to sit with members of my cabinet and see clearly what their function was. But behind the scenes... Truman and Eisenhower were quite cold. The main issue was Truman didn't like that Eisenhower had always gotten along with in the past, hadn't defended George Marshall, the Secretary of State, from attacks by Senator Joseph McCarthy during the campaign. He's betrayed everything that he stood for. Truman would say. I think he'll make a good president, but he's betrayed everything that he stood for. Eisenhower just as much didn't like being called out by Truman on this. And Truman invited Eisenhower to the White House before the inauguration, but Eisenhower stayed in his car until it was time. And Eisenhower wanted to make sure that his transition with John F. Kennedy, you know, wasn't as icy. He meets with Kennedy, meets twice right before his inauguration. Once in December, then twice right before his inauguration. One is a very formal meeting. And because uh, Clark Clifford, an aide for Kennedy, takes notes, we know of some of the things said. Eisenhower wants to give Kennedy a sense of the gravity 
of the office. Only the big decisions come to you. The rest could be resolved by inferiors. So you'll only get tough decisions in this office. And there's two areas that Eisenhower lays on Kennedy that could cause him some headache. One is about Laos. And he says the communists are advancing there. Kennedy says, well, can we keep the Southeast nations and their association? Well, you may have to use force there, Eisenhower saying to him. And then in Cuba, he makes it clear. Castro cannot remain in control of Cuba. The National Security Council is your most important meeting. Watch Berlin. Make sure you have all your information before you make a decision. Avoid hasty reorganizations of the government or the Pentagon. And there's this moment where here's Kennedy sitting down in the Oval Office and Eisenhower's there and he grabs the phone. He says, Opal, drill three. A copter three minutes later appears on the White House lawn. And Eisenhower says to Kennedy, you need to know how to get out of here in a hurry. This from Clifford's notes of the meeting between Kennedy and Eisenhower. Kennedy had requested discussion in four categories, trouble spots, Berlin, Far East, Communist Cuba, Communist China, and Formosa, Cuba, the national security setup, including how the Pentagon is working, organization of the White House, President's confidential comments regarding Macmillan, de Gaulle, Adenauer. Eisenhower's talking paper on Cuba had been written up by Robert Hurich, the State Department's Cuba desk officer, who also had prepared Kennedy's paper. Following instructions from his once-and-future bosses, Hurwich handed a one-page memo to Eisenhower and a two-page version to Kennedy. As Eisenhower began to speak, Thailand is a valuable ally, Eisenhower began, because communist-dominated Laos would expose Thailand's borders. Military training under French is poor. Would be a good idea to get U.S. military instructors there to Thailand. These are notes written by Clifford. It's not literal all the time of what Ike's saying. Morale not as good in democratic forces, Ike says. Communist forces always appear to have better morale. Commie philosophy inspires them to be dedicated. If a political settlement cannot be arranged, then we must intervene. If Laos should fall to the communists, Eisenhower said, then it would be a question of time until South Vietnam, Cambodia, Thailand, and Burma would collapse. The United States would accept this task with our allies if we could persuade them, and alone if we could not. Our unilateral intervention would be our last desperate hope. This is one of the problems I'm leaving you with, Eisenhower said, that I'm not happy about. We may have to fight. How long would it take to put a division into Laos, Kennedy asked. The defense secretary says, 12 to 17 days. This is the cork in the bottle of the Far East. If Laos is lost to the free world, in the long run, we will lose all of Southeast Asia. You are going to have to put troops in Laos, with other nations if possible, but alone if necessary. Kennedy asked Eisenhower, if the situation was so critical, why didn't you decide to do something? I would have, but I did not feel I could commit troops with a new administration coming to power, Ike answers. That from Richard Reeves, President Kennedy, Profile of Power. Clark Clifford's actually going to say later that even though the transition was nice and uh, everybody talked and, and things like that, on both sides there was a little mistrust. Of course, Eisenhower seemed to be overdoing it because he thought the new frontier team, the Kennedy team, were going to give everything away. He notes, Clifford, that on Laos, having himself avoided a land war in Asia – he now took a harder line with what Kennedy was allegedly supposed to do. And Kennedy, of course, is concerned about getting Eisenhower's criticism later. So he felt, in some ways, the tone that Eisenhower had during this transition in these meetings did a disservice to Kennedy. Kennedy, at the same time, felt that, yeah, Eisenhower had created a great infrastructure and delegated a lot, and had these committees and things, but didn't use the powers of the presidency. Kennedy felt that he could run things directly much better. So both kind of had, while a, a positive and friendly transition occurred, both had different ideas about what they were going to do anyway. I'll share one last story. Um, Richard Nixon loses that election to Kennedy in 1960. He's vice president. And on January 20th, 1961, this extreme snowstorm happens. And there's a great ceremony. Ike is behind Kennedy, they both ride in top hats to the inaugural. 
and uh, Robert Frost gives a poem. Kennedy's a little concerned that maybe Robert Frost, the poet, will upstage him, but it doesn't happen. We remember Kennedy's speech more than Robert Frost today. Nixon asked to be rode around a bit before he's going to return home uh, to, at this time, I believe, New York. And he's taken past the White House, and he's taken to the mall. He looks at the Washington Monument in the limo. He sits there for a few moments and vows that he's going to get back to this place again in power. Thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember about the Patreon. You can both help us and get more content. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. I'm at Twitter at, at myhist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Thanks for listening. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.